anytime we come to him, he hears us. And so my hope this morning is that regardless of where we're coming from this week, that we're coming to that friend of sinners today. We're coming to that Savior as we worship together. And there's a, 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 it's a special thing to gather together as those who have this friend, as those who have this Savior, that we're not just isolated out there on our own, but we're coming here together this morning to call upon this friend of sinners, to call upon this Savior, and to ask him to forgive us and to embrace us. And so we all have that this morning. We all have sins to confess from this week, from this morning, from this very moment. Uh, we all have sins to confess. We all have the need to be reminded of his love for us. So the prayer this morning overall is that that will happen, that we will be assured of his grace. So what is prayer and how do we do it? That is, uh, those are important questions. Prayer it's one of the key topics that you think of when you think of Christianity, when you think of, in fact, when you think of religion in general, prayer. Well, of course, that's kind of the part of the, the litany of things that you do in religion. Religious activity always includes some kind of invocation of the deity in general terms. I've got a calling upon the deity or deities for some religions. So prayer is a key idea, and it is at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of being a Christian. We talked some time ago about the fact that as Christians, one of the most fundamental things that we do is talk to God. And so we ask the question, do you talk to God? Do you even pray as a kind of a litmus test or a bit of a thermometer on your spiritual life? Are you, do you have spiritual life? If you do, you'll pray. And is it a growing, robust, healthy Christian life? If so, we will pray much. We will pray often. We will pray repeatedly. We will be constant in prayer. We will pray without ceasing and so forth. So what is prayer and how do we do it? When we come to answer such basic questions about prayer, we all have a tendency at the very beginning to draw from our own preconceived notions and experiences about prayer. So whether you are here today and you are a new convert, you've just come into the faith, you've just come to know God, you've just come to trust Jesus as your Savior, you've just discovered that he's a friend of sinners, whether that's you or you're a seasoned believer, you're a seasoned Christian, maybe seasoned, maybe you're younger in your season, you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you're seasoned in life and as a Christian. You've been around for a long time, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you've been praying for a long time. And undoubtedly, when we come to God's Word, always, we've already got these ways of thinking about whatever topic it is that we come to. And part of what we believe as a church is that our job is to exegete the Scriptures, not to eisegete the Scriptures. And what that means is that we pull out from the Greek word ek, to pull out from the scriptures that which is true and then to conform our lives to that which we discover rather than to bring our lives all broken and messed up to scripture and just pour ourselves into scripture. And then that's what it means. It means whatever we already decided it meant before we even opened it up. So the question that we have is how do we treat prayer in this regard? Do we treat prayer as something that has been formed by the Word of God, or is it something that really is a conglomeration of our own feelings, experiences, and preconceived notions about it? Undoubtedly, we all have unhealthy preconceived ideas about prayer. 
Undoubtedly, we all have experiences in our lives that demonstrate an unhealthy, wrong-headed even, understanding of prayer. So we need help. We need help to pray. Every single one of us in this room needs help to pray. And Jesus gives us that help in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 6, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're visiting here today, you haven't been here before, we're going through Matthew chapters 5 to 7. This is a distinct passage of Scripture. Can't be taken out of its context in Matthew. We looked at that early on as we kind of walked through those early chapters of Matthew to see kind of what precedes the Sermon on the Mount. But it is a unit of Scripture that is particularly unique and special and has been in the history of the church. And it's here in this wonderful nutshell of Christianity, of the kingdom of God, that we get Jesus' teaching on prayer. And it's introduced in chapter 6 by verse 9. Pray then like this. I can remember when I was about 20, and I was relatively new in my faith. I had prayed to receive Christ uh, after a uh, children's church meeting on a Sunday morning when I was 6. And uh, I, I had affections for the Lord. I had an experience of, of God's presence. I had a desire to read his word and do his will. But as a teenager, I did not live for the Lord at all. Zero. And at 18, God radically changed my life. And so it was about two years later, less than two years later, I was just sort of struggling in what to do, how to pray. And there were all these books out there on prayer that you would encounter. And many of them are wonderful. Many of them are great. But there was one book in particular that pointed me to the Lord's Prayer. And what was funny is having been serious about my faith for a couple of years and having grown up in the church, I really had given very little attention to the Lord's Prayer at all. And so maybe you're in that situation. I mean, maybe you've been going through the Christian life and you have prayed, obviously, if you're a Christian, but the Lord's Prayer has not functioned practically to any degree in your life. You just kind of shoot from the hip. You just do what somebody you love and respect does. You just do whatever it is you think might be best. All the while, we flip in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and Jesus says, pray like this. Very short little description of how it is that we are to approach God. And what's been clear to us so far as we're leaning into the Lord's Prayer, as we're approaching, as we're coming up on it, what's been clear to us so far is that when we as Christians pray, we are talking to our Father. So at the heart of any idea of prayer is this word Father. That's at the, at the center of it. Even more, Abba, Father. Abba is that Aramaic word that Jesus used as he prayed to the Father, Abba, Abba, Abba. And it means daddy or papa, as we've said many times before. It's a very, it's a very familiar, intimate word that connects the, the person praying to God as a small child to his father. The imagery of intimacy in and through Jesus Christ and only in and through Jesus Christ we are intimately approaching the creator of all, climbing up into his lap, gaining his ear, and crying out from the heart, Abba, Father. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, verses 14 to 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God 
are sons of God. If you have the Spirit in you, you're a son of God or a daughter of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There's not a terror relationship. We do fear the Lord, but that does not mean we're in terror of the Lord. We fear him as reverent and awe. We fear him in that way. He goes on to say, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So let me just ask you this question. Does the spirit of God in you bear witness to you that you belong to God as a child, that you belong to God as a son or as a daughter? Let me ask this question. Does God discipline you? Does God discipline you? We learn in Hebrews that one of the ways in which we know that we belong to God as his children is that he disciplines us. He disciplines the sons whom he loves. He goes on to say that fathers do that. So just as an application to as we think about that, fathers, do we discipline our children? If we don't discipline our children, we do not communicate to them that we love them. So the questions are, does Does this father discipline you? Do you belong to this father? Does the spirit of God within you cry out, Abba, Father, do you have that relationship with God? Really? Not just coming to church, not just maybe doing some Christian things here and there, not just sort of being faithfully committed to this or that practice or this or that group or whatever, but do you know God? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you experience him in your life? That is what it means to cry, Abba, Father. In his classic book, Knowing God, many of you have read this by J.I. Packer. If you haven't, you should. If you have a reading list, scratch off maybe the first couple and put this book there, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his entire outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, And better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So think of it. Is that something that plays a key role in your Christianity? Abba, Father. Is this a thought? Is this a disposition? Is this a a kind of perception that you carry around with you from the time you wake up in the morning till the time that you go to bed at night that, that you have a father, a father who loves you deeply and a father whom you can approach at any time, any day and speak with him and know him and cultivate a vibrant, intimate relationship with him. One of the points that we made last week is that when we pray our father, 
it reminds us that we pray with intercession always on our lips and always on our hearts. That we're always praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But one of the things I said is that does not negate the fact that when we pray, we pray personally to one who is indeed my father. So we don't lose that intimacy, that one-on-one personal relationship with the father. We just drag our brothers and sisters with us to God when we come to him. So we pray as individuals, but we never pray as individualists. We never pray as just isolated people. So the fatherhood of God, where is that in your Christianity? So the last two sermons have been entitled Approaching Abba and Addressing Abba. Last week we spent all of our time looking at the address in verse 9. Our Father in heaven. And one of the things that always happens to me in sermon preparation is you get into something and you think that it's going to be a point and it becomes a series of sermons. A point in one sermon becomes a series of sermons. Not because, you know, I'm clicking, but because God's word is so rich, it's so deep, it's so profound, it is so mysterious and and yet clear. So we spent this time last week just scratching the surface, really. Our Father in heaven... Such an incredible idea. You could, spend any, you could spend a lifetime, you could spend multiple lifetimes just exploring the depths of that one idea. Our Father in heaven. And this address, our Father in heaven, points us to at least seven considerations that I talked about last week. The rest of the family, our Father, the relationship of the Son, Father, the Son of God. It should remind us of Him. The right of the adopted, He is our Father through Christ, the readiness of the approach, he's Abba. He's Father. We can go to him any time. The reverence of the speaker. He's not just our Father. He's our Father in heaven. He's our heavenly Father. Remember, Jesus says that heaven is the throne of God. In heaven reminds us God is a king. He sits upon a throne. The relief of the needy. Our Father in heaven tells us that he can meet our needs and he cares about our needs. And our Father in heaven as a whole tells us that we should be like him, like father, like son, in heavenly character. So we finished last week with the resemblance of the child. But one of the things I want you to see, all of those points from last week, the common ingredient to all of these considerations is this. When we say our Father in heaven, We begin to pray. We begin by addressing God, our Father in heaven. We are immediately thrown into worship and wonder. It doesn't take any time at all in prayer before you are immediately confronted with the magnificent glory of God. At the very beginning, thrown into worship, thrown into wonder. His fatherliness, overwhelming. His heavenliness, overwhelming. His fatherliness with his heavenliness, Incredibly overwhelming. That's what we find when we enter into prayer. You could say it this way. Our minds fly immediately to the Son of God, to the glory of God, to the character of God, to the love of God, to the priorities and purposes of God. In other words, let me say it this way. Our minds fly to God. And that means they fly away from what? Self, immediately in prayer, our Father in heaven, away from self to God. Prayer, rightly understood, always begins with God. Always. Not myself, 
not my circumstances, experiences, or feelings. You know, we think in these terms. Sometimes people say, well, you should not only pray when you're going through a crisis. And people tend to associate that with, well, you should pray at other times too. But there's a deeper problem. It's not just, well, I only pray when there's a crisis. That's just a symptom. That's a symptom of something far more, far deeper, far more fundamental. And it's this. If you pray when you have a crisis and only when you have a crisis, it means one thing and one thing only. That you pray out of your circumstances. That your prayers are circumstance guided. They are circumstantial in nature rather than divine. We do not pray based on circumstances, based on experiences or feelings. We pray based on the objective reality of the loving and infinite God who has revealed himself to us in the Bible. Do you know what this means for prayer? And this right here is so refreshing. We went through a book in Men's Theology by D.A. Carson on praying like Paul, praying Paul's prayer. So we analyzed Paul's prayers throughout his epistles. And one of the things that is so was so encouraging to me personally as I read through that book was the fact that Carson talks about how we can pray and pray with power and pray with confidence even when we don't feel like praying at all and even when our minds are straying, we're distracted, we're repeating ourselves, we're fumbling along and we feel like our praying is impotent, powerless. Even in that, God as Father hears us. Because when we pray on that objective reality, that objective reality that God is, that he listens, that he's father, then it really doesn't matter how we feel. It really doesn't matter what's going on because our prayers are solid. They're rooted. We don't have to end praying going, well, that was a waste of time. What in the world did I even say? We don't have to do that when we pray. We can say, no, Man, my mind's all over the place, but Abba heard me. He heard me. God, I entrust these prayers into your sovereign hands. I don't even know what I said, but you know what I said. And I give it to you. And I trust you in Christ's name. And we move on, knowing that our prayers are solidly heard based on the objective reality of God. So it is only natural that addressing Abba, which we looked at last week, be followed by adoring Abba. And that's our topic for this morning. Adoring Abba. As we come to Matthew 6, verses 9 to 10, the latter part of Matthew 6, uh, 9 verses, uh, through verse 10, and we begin with him. And only then do we consider ourselves. So we've talked about this before, that we have a tendency, what? To take the Lord's Prayer, to invert it, and then erase the bottom part. We've got all these prayers about God and his glory, his name, his kingdom, his will. And then we got prayers about us and our needs. And what we tend to do is take our needs, put them on top. We pray about those for a little while, and then we go off to work or we go off wherever. We forget all about God and his glory. That is a tendency that we have. But what the Lord's Prayer says to us after we address God as Father, what it says to us is that we are meditating upon and praying into your name, your kingdom, your will, and that these things come first. Your kingdom, your will, your name come before give us. Forgive us and lead us. We don't pray that way. We often start with give us. And sometimes we don't even get to forgive us. 
We just give us, give us, give us, give us, give us, give us, give us. So not only do we invert it and erase the bottom half, we start erasing the, the top half too. So that our prayers essentially, and, I, and I, this should challenge each of us as Christians, maybe there's no power, no spiritual life in us because this is what we do all the time. God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. That's all we do from day to day, from week to week and month to month. That's what we say to God. And all the while, Jesus is saying, that's one-sixth, one-sixth of prayer. And you probably forget the address. It's not even our Father, give me. It's just give me, just give me, give me. And our lives are just sort of flopping along. And we wonder why. This is what Jesus has to say to us. So let's go there. Matthew 6, latter part of verse 9 to verse 10. Matthew 6, verse 9 ends, hallowed be your name. So the address, our Father in heaven, then hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's go to God in prayer and ask for his help as we walk through his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, Father, thank you that you hear us this morning. Thank you that you love this local church. Thank you that you have established and sustained this local church. Thank you that you will continue to do so. Father, not for our own, not for our own purposes or ourselves, but for your glory, for your kingdom, that the purposes that you have, the perfect purposes that you have, that you are working out in the lives of people will be done. So, Father, we pray to those ends this morning. We pray that as we gather together and read your word and, and hear your word taught and as we think on it, meditate upon it, that you would guide us to pray kingdom prayers, that you would guide us to pray prayers that are in accordance with your will as revealed in Scripture, that you will help us to pray in accordance with your fatherliness and your heavenliness in accordance with your great holy saving name father we need much help in prayer much help as a church much help as as individuals much help in our families god we are so needy would you provide for us what we need father we desperately need help to pray lord as we've gone through this just these introductory remarks I'm confident, Father, that all of us are convicted of the fact that we, we frequently take our needs and our desires and our will and we just exalt them to the highest place and we come to you and we just ask for you to give us, give us, give us, revealing day by day the idolatries of our hearts, revealing day by day that we, we like the world, like the pagan, unbelieving, godless world, seek self and personal fulfillment above all. Father, would you have mercy upon us for our sin? Not our mistakes, not our errors, but for our rebellion against you and against your holy law. Forgive us, Father, for our sins, for our trespasses. 
where we miss the mark, where we fall short of your glory, where we rebel against your word. And help us today, Father, as we go through your word, would you protect it, that Satan would not come and take it away, but that your word would, would take root and that it would bear fruit. It would, it would create much fruit in each of our lives, Father, that because we've been here this morning and we've engaged with your word, that this will not just be another Sunday, another time of worship, but that this truly will be a day in which you do mighty things in our lives, that you, your will is accomplished in, in very specific and powerful ways this morning. We know that you can do far more than we could ever ask, far more abundantly than we could ever ask or even imagine or think. So, Father, we ask that you will do that this morning as you work in us, and as you protect us from the evil one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have three petitions to look at at the first part of the Lord's Prayer, adoring Abba, all having to do explicitly with God himself, three things that we're praying for. And we will cover the first today, and the second two we will look at next time. Uh, the second two actually go pretty close. They all go closely together. It's amazing how just with the Beatitudes, you saw how poverty of spirit goes into mourning and goes into meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and mercy, being merciful. All the ways that these come together. Well, the same is true of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. But the second two in particular, God's kingdom and God's will, are really closely united. So we will cover those next week. But today we will look at the first. So three petitions, essentially these. That his attributes would be acknowledged, that his reign would be realized, and that his purposes would be perfected. So let's look at this first. His attributes acknowledged. You'll notice that in each of these first three petitions, there is the main idea, the subject. We've got God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. That's what covers adoration. That's the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Before we get to our needs, we go straight to God's name, straight to God's kingdom, and straight to his will. And each of these is accompanied by an imperative verb in the third person, which could be read like this. Let it be hallowed. Let it come. Let it be done. And the first of these is let your name be hallowed or hallowed be your name. Now, probably aside from, maybe not, but aside from what we find here, you maybe have never used the word hallowed. You probably have not used it this past week. You probably have never typed it on social media Hallowed is not something that we tend to say. It's an archaic word. It's an old word. It's not common, but it does a good job conveying the meaning of the verb as we have it here. The basic meaning is this, to sanctify, to consecrate, to set apart, or to make holy. But there's a problem. We know something fundamental about God and his name. It's already holy. We don't make God's name holy at all. So the prayer is not that God's name be made holy, but that it be treated as holy, that it be honored as, as holy, or in that old word, hallowed, that it be treated as holy. So if you want to sort of put a little note in your Bible above this, just simply put that. May your name be treated as holy. Let your name be honored as holy. 
So that's how we should understand the verb. But what about the subject, God's name? We know what we want as we come to God in prayer with this very first request, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We know what we're asking him to do, and we'll get into that more in a little bit, to treat it as holy, that it would be treated as holy. But then we've got this idea of God's name. That's the main idea. That's the subject. This is an idea that we find throughout the Bible. This is probably one of the most repeated ideas that we find in the Old Testament. God's great name. His holy name, the upholding of his name. So we read in our call to worship at the beginning, Psalm 34, Psalm 30, verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. That's just a little taste of all the ways that you see this idea being played out throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 9, 16, this is a very interesting passage. God tells Pharaoh through Moses. So God has sent Moses into Egypt to tell Pharaoh, from God, let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't listen. We know that God sends multiple plagues upon the Egyptians until God ultimately takes the firstborn son and Pharaoh says, okay, fine. He lets the people go. We know that they go out for a while into the wilderness. They're headed into the wilderness. And what what does the Pharaoh say? He says, well, never mind. He gets all of his chariots and all of his men, and he goes out to get the children of Israel. They are right there in between a sea and an army, and God splits the sea like this. He parts the sea. We're told that there's a a water, a wall of water on one side, a wall of water on the other side, and that God's people go through. Pharaoh, in his utter stupidity, decides that he's going to go through the water, chasing the people, and God closes the water down on the army of the Egyptians, and God's people go out to worship him. Well, before all of that takes place, we have God saying this to Pharaoh. But for this purpose, this is the sovereignty of God, even in Pharaoh's hardness, but for this purpose, I have raised you up. In other words, you wouldn't even be a Pharaoh. You wouldn't even exist if not for this. I've raised you up. To show you my power so that, here's the purpose, so that my name, my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And just before this, God says this to Pharaoh. Just before this verse, a few verses earlier, he says this, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. One of the most interesting things that, I, that I've seen in the major museums that we've been to, been, been able to see, uh, are the Egyptian exhibits, you know, the mummies and all that stuff. It's one of the, one of the neatest things that you see in a museum, I think, if, if you're interested in ancient history and those sorts of things. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is that at every level of Egyptian society, there was religion. Every level. The Pharaoh was a god. The Pharaoh was a representative of the god. He would leave and be buried in these these massive tombs, these pyramids even. 
and then he would kind of venture into the afterlife. And the deities would take him around in the afterlife. He had to make sure he had his stuff with him when he was buried. So he could go with those things into the afterlife. And it's in the face of all this pagan idolatry and the the gods that they worshipped in the form of, of birds and crocodiles and other kinds of animals. It's in the face of this idolatry and these beliefs in false gods that God says that you may know, Pharaoh, and all of Egypt, And all of the world who knows the power of Egypt, that you may know that there is none like me, none like me in all the earth. What we see here in these two verses is a connection between God's character, what he is like, and his name. Remember the first verse I read you, he talked about his name being proclaimed in all the earth. And in the second verse I read to you, it says that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So there's a connection here between God's name and what he's like. His name and what he is like. And there was in ancient Israel a very close relationship between one's essential character or activity and his name. So maybe you're familiar with this passage. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 8, I love this portion of Scripture. It's incredible. Moses wants to see God's glory. He wants to see into who this God is. And we have God passing by Moses. Moses could look upon his back. Whatever's going on there. We would all have loved to have been there. Whatever was going on there. But this is what God Said, or this is what it says that God said, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, listen to this, the name of the Lord. And he did not just say the Lord and go back up. He did not just say a name. When he proclaimed his own name, the name of the Lord, this is what he said. The Lord The Lord, by the way, the name Lord, Yahweh, comes from the the verb, I am, which is what God revealed himself to Moses as in the burning bush. I am who I am. I am. I am the eternally self-existing one. He's self-existent. He always has existed. He's infinite and eternal. Everything else is a creature. He is creator. The Lord, the Lord, and then listen to what he says. This is part of his name. I want you to see that. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. What does that say to us fathers? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. At what? At what? At the name of God, the Lord, the Lord, dot, 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 all of these things packed into who this God is, his character, his activities. All of this is part of his name. We see this with Jesus in Matthew 1.21. You've encountered this verse. We looked at it even over Christmas. This is what the angel says to Joseph. It says, Mary will bear a son, 
And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we talked about how this name Jesus, what's this, the, the, the text does not explain it for us, but a Jew would have understood that very much. The name Jesus, Yeshua, means the Lord saves or the Lord's salvation. So we see this even with Jesus. We see this in the Old Testament with God's name, Yahweh, Yahweh, what it means, what's packed into it, and we see this with Jesus. You will call his name Jesus because he's the Savior. To call him Jesus is to call him Savior. It is to call him God's redemptive purposes housed in a person. It is to call him the one who saves those who belong to God. So here's the point. The name and the character and activity of a person are essentially one and the same. So now let's put it all together. Hallowed be your name. Let your name be hallowed. What is this first petition of the Lord's Prayer? If we wanted to kind of capture it in a sentence, what would we say about this petition? That God the Father, in all of his character and activity, in all of his glorious attributes, be treated or honored as holy. That God be acknowledged, that he be honored, glorified for who he is, as the infinitely distinct, set-apart God. Now, what does this say when we think about idolatry in our lives? Because when we live our lives as, as, as normal, we go out and we kind of engage with our job, we engage with our families, we carry on our leisure activities, we just go about life, we begin to latch on to things in life. Things become good things, and idols are always good things. I mean, well, not always, but they tend to derive from a good, healthy desire. Every person seeks his or her good. That's the reason why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, because everyone naturally loves himself, desires his own or her own survival. But as we're going through life, there are these good things that we find that God has provided for us, and we what? We latch on to them. We idolize our spouse. We idolize our children. We idolize our jobs, we idolize our possessions, we idolize our financial security, we idolize our health, or whatever else it might be. We idolize these things, maybe even idolize our church, maybe even idolize our gospel community group, I don't know. We, I, we turn everything good into an idol. The heart, as Timothy Keller says, is an idol factory, always producing idols, and so part of what we know that this means is that in a person's life, he or she sets apart God as holy God, as unique God, as uniquely set apart, lifted up, worthy of worship, so that everything in life not only is subservient to God, that's, that's, that's a very small way of saying it. It's not that everything in life is subservient to God. It's that everything in life is utterly distinct from God. He is on an entirely different level. He's holy. He's set apart. He's distinct. And everything else falls far short of him. Everything else, in fact, is to be used for his glory. And so we see this as we go through our lives, realizing all of the idolatries that we have, that God would be set apart as holy. But beyond that, what are the implications for us as we think about praying this petition from the heart? So we come to this, these words, hallowed be your name, and we ask the question, so what does that mean for me? 
What does that mean for the way I pray? What's packed into that? What are the implications of saying that to the Father? Our Father in heaven, we looked at that last week and saw some of the implications there for what that should bring to our minds as we say our Father in heaven. What should be brought to our minds when we say, hallowed be your name? So I want to give you seven things. I didn't put these on the slide, so let me just throw these out there for you. You can write them down, down if you'd like to. I'll go through each of them, but let me give you seven things. First, bowing. Second, centering. Third, knowing. Fourth, spreading. Fifth, reflecting. Sixth, speaking. And then finally, depending. So let me go through each of these and explain what I mean. So first, Bowing. What was Moses' response, which I just pointed to, when he heard the name of God proclaimed? When God appeared to him and proclaimed his name, what was Moses' response? This is what we read in verse 8. I'll read it again to you. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I want you to notice three things that we can take out of those words, just those words. This is the proclamation of God's name. And this is what Moses did. This was Moses' response. So when we come to God, our Father in heaven, we pray, hallowed be your name. This should be our response. The name of God in view. The name of God on our hearts, on our minds. What should our response be? The first thing that we see about Moses' response is it's immediate. What does it say? He quickly. He didn't waste any time. He quickly bowed and worshiped. And I think that tells us that when the name of God is hallowed, when we're considering the hallowing of God's name, it does two things, and it happens immediately. It pushes us down, and it lifts God up. What does it say? He bowed his head to the earth, and he worshiped. So there are two things that happen simultaneously if God's name is to be hallowed in your life and in your praying, my life, my praying. It has to be this, a bowing of the head, figuratively and maybe literally, a bowing of the head before God and a lifting up of his character, of his activities. And that means that prayer most fundamentally is born out of humility. A prideful heart doesn't pray. Not truly. A prideful heart does not come to God in this way. A prideful heart does not hallow his name. Because to see his name is to fall on our faces. You know, there's an ancient kind of medieval practice, which may or may not be healthy and probably often is pretentious. But there is a practice of sort of, and I've seen this happen with uh, some of my friends who are monks and priests, that they sort of lay down on their face and they put their arms out like this. They literally lay flat on the ground. Now, oftentimes it's pomp and ceremony and I don't really have much regard for it. But... In truth, what we're seeing there is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. And that reality is, whoo, before God. Like the angels, wings covering the eyes, wings covering the feet. Holy, holy, holy. Just repeat it for eternity. Because that's who God is. And this is the response we must have in prayer. And this tells us that flippant fatherhood should not be a part of our prayers. Coming to God as Father, Abba, 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 and taking Abba off of his throne, as we talked about last week, and treating him as a common thing, not as the infinite, eternal God, is not Christian prayer. It's something else. It's misinformed, but it's not Christian. 
So that's the first word, I think, an implication for us as we say, hallowed be your name. We bow. Secondly, we center, centering. John 5, 23 says this. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then Jesus says this in John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name. So listen to this. We talk about the name of God. Lord, Lord, merciful and compassionate as we just read in Exodus. But I want to take that even a step further. The name of God there revealed to Moses in Exodus. But then listen to what Jesus does with the name of God. John 12, 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Just a little while later in John 17, 1, he says, Father, glorify your son. Jesus Christ is the name of God. He is the express image of his glorious nature. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the exact imprint of his nature. In him are housed all the riches of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says in Colossians. Christ is the name of God. He is God with us. He is God manifested in the flesh. And so, any prayer to Abba that does not hallow the Son, any prayer to Abba that does not center on Christ, any kind of Christianity, any kind of Christian practice or Christian life or church life that does not center on Christ does not hallow the name of God. You must exalt the Son to exalt the Father. So let me say this. Think about it in these terms. Do you sometimes pray with a very general or vague understanding of who God is? Maybe sometimes you just get into the habit of just God, 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 and you're just praying to some sort of distant deity that's had some kind of, uh, you've had an experience of him in your life, but he's not really, he, he's just vague, he's general. You strip him of any particularities. You strip him of any uniqueness. You strip him, most fundamentally, of any relationship to Christ. It's just God, God, God. God, God, God. And then there we go. Give me, give me, give me. Give me, give me, give me. To hallow God's name, which is what we're talking about, to hallow God's name is to replace general and vague perceptions of God, whatever they may be, with God as found in the face of Jesus Christ. That is where we find God. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We believe in a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the Son of God is the image of God. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the Father. So we've got bowing, we've got centering, but now we have knowing. So let me just ask this question. How much do you know about God? This is a big one. This one's hugely important for us because here's what we do. Become Christians, living the Christian life. We think we've got God all figured out. We think we understand the contours of who he is. We sort of put him in a box. We can even draw a picture of him. 
We, we, just, we just have it in our minds who God is. Whatever that is, you, you just, yeah, out of your own personality even. Maybe you're more, you know, kind of obedience oriented in the way you think about life. And so, you know, you see God, you project God. Okay, that's God. You take maybe that attribute and you dismiss the others. Or maybe you kind of think of God as just warm and friendly. And, and, and so maybe you're a lonely, kind of melancholic type of person. And that's the God that you, re, you, you project him in that way. It's an image of yourself. We do that all of the time. We, we create God in our own image, and then we bow down to him and pray to him. Now, God's gracious, and all of us have wrong conceptions about God. Isn't it amazing that God still hears our prayers? As foolish as we are, isn't it amazing that God still says, yes, my son, yes, my daughter. I mean, how many of our, how many of our children come up to us and do all kinds of things, and we we still hear them in their foolishness. We know that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the children of Adam, you, me. So we know that God still hears us. He listens, he responds. But to hallow his name, remember, his name is to know something about him. You know, I oftentimes heard this, and I think this is, this is, this is terribly flawed. People will say, It's not about knowing about God. It's about knowing God. That's rubbish. That's not true. We know God by knowing about God. We learn about him from his word. We learn about his attributes, his character, his saving activity. And it's when we learn, 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 and know, we apply it. And it infuses life into us. We appropriate the truth of what we learn about him for our own souls. So that we pray, my refuge my fortress, my rock in time of need. How do we know that? Just sounds nice? No. We know that he's a rock. Literally, you can stand on him and he does not move. We know that whatever comes in life, in that secret place with Abba, that he shields our souls from despair. We know that he protects us from fear. We know that he steals away regret. We know that he protects us mind body, soul, everything, that he really is a fortress to those who know him. But we must know about him. We must know what he did. And most fundamentally, we must know what he did in Christ. So the question is this. I ask it again. Do you know his name? So I'm a Christian, of course. I'll ask it again. Do you know his name? And I want to say this to you. If you don't read the Bible... Our understanding of his name is going to be very muddy, very cloudy. This will corrupt our prayers. It can't help but to corrupt our prayers when we don't see God as he's revealed himself to be. He says, here I am. And we read and we hear and we think and we meditate and we apply. And then out of that, we come to him. God, that's who, God, Abba, that's prayer. Prayer without scripture really frequently fails to be prayer at all. It becomes idolatry. Life and prayer must be a response to Scripture. Always. So that's the third, knowing. We have bowing and centering and knowing. And then I want to point you to another here, spreading. Our knowledge of Him. So we learn about God from His Word. We grow in knowledge of Him. And then our Knowledge of him should not end with us. 
but it should be spread outward. To pray, hallowed be your name, we say these words to the Father, to pray, hallowed be your name, is to pray that the knowledge of God would spread everywhere. Listen to these words in Habakkuk 2.14. This is what's coming. This is coming. You read the news, you hear the news, think, man, it's a messed up world. This is what's coming. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what's coming. And so to pray, hallowed be your name, is to pray that the knowledge which we have of God, knowing about him and knowing him intimately and personally, just spreads. It's about spreading. We can't pray, hallowed be your name, without being missional. We can't pray, hallowed be your name, without being evangelistically oriented. Hallowed be your name implies all of that, that we just want his name to be praised. We want people to know how good he is and how kind and loving and merciful and gracious. We want people to know how powerful he is, how much he is a rock and a fortress to those of us when we're in need. We want everybody to know that. Everywhere there is a human person, everywhere there's a beating heart, we want the praise of God's name to be there. Spreading. And then reflecting. We have already seen that God is glorified or honored as people see his character lived out through us. So you remember the words, Matthew 5, 16, salt and light. We have the passage over here on the wall. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But what does he say at the end of that passage? What does Jesus say at the end of those verses? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you know what? We don't do good works so we can earn heaven. We do good works to glorify God. Unbelievers do works to earn heaven because they worship idols. They worship themselves and their own performance. Christians don't do that. Christians don't work to earn favor from God. Christians work out from favor with God through Jesus Christ for the glory of God. That is how a Christian functions in the world because we want to hallow his name. And his name is stamped on us. Stamped on us. Praise God. We are his. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval theologian, in his shorter Summa, or Sum of Theology, wrote this. I think it's very fitting. Actually, I'll tell you something funny. It's just anecdotal. But So I got, the, I got an email this week from someone in our family who I don't think knows what I'm preaching on. Honestly, just, I, don't, I don't think he knows what, that I'm, what I'm going through right now. And it was, it was this quote. It was just incredible. Just got it right in the middle of the week. It was Jennifer's uncle. He sends me stuff. He's, he's Roman Catholic, so he sends me all kinds of stuff. Some of which I pay attention to more than others. But this one in particular, you know, I, I, I quite like Thomas Aquinas. So I was reading through and I was thinking, okay, this is, this is, this is great. And I was reading through it and immediately I thought, wow, this is, this, is, this is so providential. But this is what it says. Among the various indications that make the holiness of God known to men, the most convincing sign is the holiness of men who are sanctified by the divine indwelling. In teaching us the words, hallowed be thy name. Our Lord also bids us, when we pray, to ask that God may be glorified by our lives. The sense of the prayer is this. Grant us so to live that all men 
may glorify thee through us. God is sanctified or hallowed in the minds of other men through us to the extent that we are sanctified by him. You know, it's always amazing to me that God has chosen us to display his glory. Why is it God made the stars and the planets and the complexity of animal life and the beauty of the earth and the beauty of the heavens so that man might look and say, God is great? That's why. Those things do not exist simply to just be this kind of inanimate means of glorifying God. They exist so that we those made in his own image who have a rational mind, who have the capacity for relationship, could look upon those things with the senses God has given us, could look upon those things, take them in, be drawn to him, and say, glory to God, and to live like him. That's why those things even exist. Apart from that, they would not. Remember, in Genesis, we are the crowning of God's creation on the earth. That's the reason the earth's broken, is because we're broken. When we become unbroken, so too will the earth. Speaking, as we finish up this morning, two more speaking. Our lips do not speak carelessly or irreverently of God or to God. His character and therefore his name are treated with the highest reverence. We talked about this last week. We don't just go to God blabbing, blabbering on. We don't just go to God just speaking random thoughts, just a train of consciousness. We consciously go to him as our father. And we do not speak carelessly about him. Often we say things like, oh my God, or speak about Jesus Christ so flippantly. Hallowing the name of God means not doing this. And then finally, and I think this is an important point we have to make throughout. It's depending. In all of these petitions, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. In all of these petitions, God's name cannot be hallowed in us and through us apart from his mercy and grace. So remember this, these are prayers. These are prayer petitions. We're not saying, I'm gonna hallow God's name. I'm gonna bring his kingdom into being. I'm gonna live out his will. No, no. We're crying out to God in poverty of spirit. We are saying, God, do these things and wrap me up in your purposes. Wrap me up, my life up. Wrap our church up in what it is that you are already doing and what you do for your own glory and not for us. We are empty of praise and adoration until God puts it there. So we beg him, we seek him, We ask him for righteousness, the kind of righteousness that brings adoration. But do we just wait for him to put it there? We just wait, just say, God, give me some righteousness. I already have Christ's righteousness, but give me a righteous life. Give me good works, God. Give me adoration and praise, God. I just don't feel it. Come on, God. Why? God, I'm just not feeling it. It's not going well. we're We're just waiting for God to just sort of drop a Christian life right in the lap. And then we'll grab it and then we'll live it. No, it is our job to hunger and thirst for it and to eagerly ask for it from the Father. And he is a good Father. He will give what we ask for so that his name may be glorified throughout the earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by your word this morning. 
We're humbled by your glory, humbled by your sovereign ruling reign as king of all. We are humbled by the fact that your purposes involve our good. Father, we know that we are a needy people and we greatly need your grace to respond to this this sermon, to respond to this scripture. So Father, would you help us to heed your word this morning? And would we respond in a way that is dependent upon you, but that is not passive? Father, may we not be passive in the Christian life. May we be like Paul, who said to imitate him, may we be active, constantly putting to death the deeds of the body, constantly mortifying the flesh, constantly striving and pressing on toward the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. Would we be that even today, even now, Father? Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.